Bilateral upper limb loss presents multiple daunting challenges to both the individual patient and the caregiver. There are few published articles about this population, but expert clinicians stress the necessity of prioritizing the client's needs to direct and fine-tune prosthetic solutions. However, both clinicians, such as prosthetists, doctors, and therapists, and developers, engineers, inventors, and manufacturers are lacking first-hand data about individuals with bilateral upper limb loss and their needs. Hi everyone, I'd like to welcome you to episode 11 of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guest today is Dr. Harold Sears, PhD. Dr. Sears was President of Motion Control Division of Phil Hour in Salt Lake City, Utah until he retired in 2017. He was PI on approximately 15 research grants and projects and also focused heavily on clinical education for both prosthetists and consumers. Dr. Sears earned his, earned his bachelor's and PhD degrees from the University of Utah, a master's degree from Stanford, and defended freedom as a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal in the early 70s. Today, we will be discussing a recent article that Dr. Sears published in JPO entitled, A Small-Scale Survey of Bilateral Upper Limb Loss Individuals. Welcome to the podcast, Harold. Thank you very much. I'm glad you uh, decided to include my little pitch for the Peace Corps. <laughs> That's one way to serve your country. I hope people still think about it. Absolutely. We appreciate your service. Thank you very much. So let's get right into the article here. Why does this topic interest you, Harold? Oh boy, where to start? Everyone involved with clinical care and prosthetics, I was involved as a teacher and as a consultant with people on their technology. Uh, so I did get a chance to work with and meet a number of bilateral limb loss individuals. I think I speak for most clinicians. We are struck as a group with how wonderfully positive they are and uh, if they've gone through the struggle of learning to use their artificial limbs of whatever type, they don't show bitterness, they show positiveness as a whole. You just hugely appreciate their challenges. And so uh, at the end of my career, I realized, of course, this is a very, very understudied group. There's very little literature about how to approach the clinical treatment in any way, shape or form, whether you're talking about the prosthetic components or the counseling for uh, adjustment to usually a life-threatening uh, disease or injury. So they're a very fascinating group. And of course, the meeting, the workshop that's held every three years called the uh, Skills for Life was a meeting that I had attended most of the meetings that have been held so far. And that is a great place to recruit subjects. So I thought, well, there's a great near. I just retired. I thought, wow, I'm going to go to that meeting in October uh, once again as an individual rather than as a uh, person marketing or trying to educate about the company's own products. So it was ready made for the chance to add some knowledge to the field. Very nice. And I'm impressed that even after you retired, you wanted to jump into this area, collect more information and share it with prosthetists, orthodists, researchers, physicians, and therapists. Thank you. You got to find something to do with yourself. 
beyond just riding my bicycle more or playing my guitar more or something like that. So what was the purpose of your study? Well, uh, initially, as I said, was to add more knowledge to the individuals working in the field. I just thought of myself 30 years before, how could I possibly find out more about bilateral limb loss? What would I want to know? Uh, Number two, what do these individuals as a group, what should be known about them to help them to guide the uh, research that, as you well know, uh, in the last 20 years, there's a lot of drum beating from the funding organizations beginning and after the wars in the Middle East, Operation Iraqi Freedom and such. There was a lot of funding for research and development in prosthetics. And frankly, I felt that a lot of the research and development in our field was very technology-driven as opposed to consumer-driven. Again, the most obvious case is you go to the meeting of, and the Skills for Life had over 70 individuals with bilateral limb loss three years ago. Their lives were untouched by most of the recent research done in uh, upper limb prosthetics. So that was the overall sort of guiding motivation was to, okay, how can we help these people? And the type of study that I've been involved with, mostly for product development for our products at Motion Control and initially at the laboratory at the University of Utah, those studies were designed to guide development, but they involved a method that we had to learn and develop ourselves. But In each case where we did evidence-based practice studies, there was, and a couple of them were published. There was one on proportional control that was widely uh, disseminated, fortunately, and one on uh, electric wrist use. They weren't just useful for guiding our growth. They taught us a great deal about how individuals actually use their prostheses. So we thought, all right, let's start there and do the, uh, the sort of, big mama of all questionnaires uh, for bilateral wearers. You you need to gather data on both sides, dominant and non-dominant, et cetera, et cetera. So it seemed like, well, let's try that. We did develop a long questionnaire and eventually we felt like that'll tell us what people actually do. I should say I was very aware of the fact that I had retired as a president of a company that specializes in powered upper limb prosthetics. I didn't want to be seen as a drum beater for that technology because I actually, to tell you the truth, expected that there were going to be a predominant uh, use of body power and absolutely not a lot of acceptance for electric devices even though we'd begun to make inroads at motion control with some devices, notably electric hooks. So getting to the point, we wanted to collect data that would, in an objective way, tell us what people use in their lives, what had they found useful, what they liked and what they didn't like, and help to answer the question that is so difficult in upper limb prosthetics, especially, what is good? and what is bad. And if you think about that very long, you realize, boy, that's a very difficult question because 
good can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different ways to people, not just function, but how does it suit them as far as their comfort goes? Can they, how easy it is for them to learn to use, et cetera, et cetera. So just asking people what they used effectively, what their needs were, that was what we wanted to learn. And you already mentioned kind of one way that you recruited subjects, but trying to recruit individuals who have bilateral upper limb loss must have been very challenging. So how did you go about recruiting participants and collecting all this data? That is a very significant question for a study like this. We ended up with 28 subjects whose interviews we used. I thought we could recruit quite a few, and we ended up recruiting half of those at the Skills for Life meeting. We just had a little table and made a poster to explain people what our study was about. But also, I used the contacts I developed in the field from physicians and prosthetists, et cetera, as well as my own personal acquaintance. As I said, I've met a number of these people, and they had helped uh, us in earlier studies, uh, some of them. So one by one between myself and the two co-authors, Kim Doolin, who has a long history of activity amongst the uh, consumer groups, especially. In fact, I think she was a consumer advocate in the Academy board for a while. And Denise Keenan, who has a long history in uh, hand therapy and occupational therapy, especially training people with electric devices, but also body power devices. So between the three of us, we had a lot of contacts in the field and were able to mine those and get informed consents, <laughs> meaning people consented to have a long interview. We promised we could do it in an hour if they needed to be. Probably the average interview was an hour and a half. So people signed off for a good donation of their time. but. Again, this is, a, this is a population where they're eager to see some progress in the future of the technology and prosthetic care. So once we explained to people what we wanted, we were pretty successful at getting them to volunteer. And again, using our contacts in the industry, we were able to get a pretty good number. And what were the demographics of your participants, Harold? Well, naturally, if they're already used and... and in order to use their data on their prostheses, they needed to have used it for a year. So they ended up being a little bit older. There were about a third of our group had used their prosthetics one to five years. And some of those were under 25, but only a few. Another third had used their prostheses between five and 20 years. So many of those were middle-aged, or a little bit older. And then another third were from 20 to 40 years use. So they ended to be skewed a little towards older, but there was a fair number of people that had, uh, again, only one to five years experience and not many pediatric cases anymore suffer from bilateral limb loss, fortunately. I think another thing that influences the demographics is the high number of individuals with sepsis and about 40% of our uh, recruited group had lost their limbs due to sepsis. And those are both male and female. And even the trauma cases were well represented, although the majority were male, of course. 
And let's get into the meat of what you found then. So what were the primary findings of your study? Well, most of this group are very excellent wares of their prosthesis. As I said, we were always impressed with how functional they could be. They were functional with all the different types of prosthetics that they used. There were 28 individuals, but there was one who was not a prosthesis wearer, relatively long level of limb loss. So out of those 27 active wearers, 17 used body power, but the remaining 10 were using electric devices. And by the way, when we say they used these devices, we rapidly learned that the dominant side of individuals, which was always the longer amputation between their dominant and non-dominant sides, the longer side was always going to be dominant, no matter what their limb dominance was before injury or disease. So getting to the point, everybody was quite independent for the most part. That was very gratifying. Hooks were favored in that all the body-powered wearers used hooks. None were using body-powered hands. And the majority of the electric wearers were using hooks also. So electric hooks were making some positive inroads. That was, again, I might be accused of being biased in that way, but numbers are their numbers. But electric hands were also used to some extent usually by longer. So that was gratifying. Very few used two types of arms. I thought, well, there'll, there'll be people that have a whole set of electric arms or three or four sets of them uh, and a body powered, and they'll use them all to some extent. Even if they did have a lot of different types of prosthesis that they've been fitted with, should we say in their armamentarium of, of that individual, pretty much people tended to use one type. There were several, you count on the fingers of one hand, who did sometimes use an electric and a body powered, but generally people don't like to switch between the two so much. In the same breath, I have to say, everybody had backups. And that's a truism in bilateral care is that People need a backup prosthesis because they're so dependent on it for their independence and sometimes for their work. Uh, another finding that was very interesting was just how much that dominant side was used. It didn't mean that the non-dominant side was useless or, or just uh, there for aesthetic reasons, for instance. It was always used somewhat usually as a supportive device uh, for its passive function, and sometimes for prehension on both sides, but very rarely could somebody effectively coordinate prehension use on both left and right sides. So when we talked about our data about how much the device is used and what the pros and cons focused on the primary side, so if somebody used a, a hook on one side and a hand on the other side, that was kind of a dilemma as to which data is more important. We had to choose, well, the primary side, which was used three times as much as the non-dominant side, was going to be the type of terminal device and prosthesis that we focused on to be represented in our data. So that was an important, and again, it doesn't mean that the non-dominant side is unimportant. The biggest areas of improvement, and again, that was a, as I said, a major goal was what's good about devices, 
what's needed and what's needed to be improved. Clearly, when all the dust settled with all the data collected, reliability is absolutely one of the two most important needs that people want satisfied in the use of their present devices. They want better reliability, both body powered and electric, both hooks and hands. The other very strong need is grip security. You might think, oh, those hooks are just really strong and they can grab anything like with great security, especially electric hooks with who can grip up to 22 pounds, which can be gripped to that level, very seldom used at that high level because of the fear of breakage. Grip security of them all. If they have rubber coatings, they want better rubber coatings. Even with hands, you might think, oh, you get your hand around something that's very secure. Well, not everything can have the hand grip around it. So for all categories, grip security was hugely important. We could go on and on, but <laughs> those are the high points. Yeah, I know you presented a lot of good information in your article, so I appreciate that summary of your findings. Were there any unanticipated surprises in your results? Yes, to some extent. As I said, I accepted the sort of conventional wisdom, which is that, oh, they're all going to wear body-powered hooks. And if you go to the Skills for Life meeting, you'll see the majority of people using their body-powered hooks. But it wasn't unanimous by any means that the, uh, the electric hooks were being used very effective. And sometimes, in a few cases, people didn't even have a backup as a body part. They were simply using their electric hooks. So that was a little surprising. I think I was surprised that there were some people that were using hands, lifelong wearers of, of hand prosthetics. No, they don't have outdoor work. <laughs> Anybody with outdoor work or has a lot of outdoor activities definitely was predictably using body-powered devices. But the electric devices acquitted themselves pretty well, given the conventional wisdom that no one would use them at all. We found one of the features that people really ranked very low was how good their training was. And I think even the expert trainers in our field who contributed a great deal to the improvement of training of upper limb individuals, I think everyone would agree we don't get through them soon enough. We don't give them as much training as we'd like to. And so everybody reported, oh, no, I almost had no training at all, was the most common response. But they still learned to use their devices. So there was a dichotomy between, oh, how much training did you get? Oh, almost none. I'm just generalizing here. But for the most part, no, I trained myself. Or no. I was training my therapist how a bilateral wearer is going to use their prosthetics. In the end, though, they didn't say, I really suffered from the lack of training. They were so good at training themselves. You would maybe, again, this is overgeneralizing maybe, but still, they didn't rate it as the worst thing about their prosthesis. The worst thing, as I said, was they, they want more grip security and they want better reliability. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on issues concerning therapy, concerning component selection, because I'm wondering to you, Harold, what are the main clinical takeaways? How can your results be applied to clinical practice? Well, thank you. I do have some ideas on that, <laughs> you, might say, you might say, but I've always been a huge proponent of trial fit. And what little literature there is about fitting bilaterals 
uh, does support the trial and error uh, approach to fitting this population of bilateral patients. There was a very nice chapter written by Jack Ulandall and Craig Heckethorn years ago. One of the few things, again, focused strictly on bilaterals is you've got to take a trial and error approach. And I think the experts in the field are capable of giving people exposure to both body-powered and electric devices, both hands and hooks, and then with a proper period of trial, let people learn what works for them. And then I would say keep on trialing because new technology comes along. People's experience changes them. Yes, people start with hands and they're really, if people come in saying, I didn't lose hooks. I lost my hands. Give me some hands. I've seen them on TV. Golly, there's even an arm called the Luke arm, for goodness sakes. It must work just like Luke Skywalker's. I've got to have a chance at it. How do you tell a person, no, you can't. No, you can't. You shouldn't. And they, they deserve a shot at it. But they should trial both those electric hands maybe even body powered hands or passive hands, but they should trial uh, body powered devices too, especially hooks. Um, and then let them keep trying as technology improves. God willing, it will improve more and more. That's a key point. The other thing is that the awareness of sepsis has to be improved in the medical community. To have 40% of, of just our sample have sepsis, and, and I think that's probably pretty close to what's going on in the field. Yes, people will still have electrical accidents and other types of accidents to lose hands, unfortunately, but sepsis is a grim reaper, so to speak, that is a type of epidemic, really, and the medical community needs to know how to respond quickly to prevent loss of limb in this population. The only thing I'd add to that is that those two areas I mentioned, the reliability and grip security, if clinicians appreciate that in this population, which are people with a third of them are over 20 years experience, as I said, and another third of them are five to 20 years. If that population says our greatest problem is reliability and grip security, then Think twice before you start recommending and go fight a bloody battle with an insurance company to get something that's liable to be scored pretty low on reliability and grip security. That is going to be a need for them if they're going to be an independent individual. And in, in our culture, independence is a huge drive for all of our patients, whether they're bilateral or not. Every experienced clinician will know that. So appreciate what people have learned to use effectively and don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What works well, well, don't, don't dismiss that as well. That's old school. It works well for a reason. Now, as we start winding down here, Harold, I always like to ask, because I'm a researcher myself, and I know that the research doesn't take place without consideration of, of funding, time and, and money. Did you receive any funding to conduct this study? No, sir. In your introduction, you mentioned that I was a PA on a number of projects. You start writing and making applications for external funding 
about a year before you can even hope to. I mean, that would be a, a from start to funding. That would be a, something you'd really hope for that you could you could have a dollar to spend a year after you start a major effort. It takes a whole lot of time, and we wanted to get started. And then I realized that the kind of study that I wanted to do wasn't going to take a lot of money. It was going to take a lot of my time, but I could make a deal with myself for a pretty low rate on my time. Uh, so to be facetious, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I could spend time and I recruited Denise and Kim and they had some time, even though they were still working. I was retired. I figured, yeah, if I play my cards right, it's not going to take that much money. And it didn't. Well, you did very fine work. And uh, so thank you for uh, conducting this study and publishing in JPO. You're very welcome. I thank JPO and the, the reviewers. One in particular, JPO really helped us enormously to hammer this huge body of work into something that was reasonably readable. There's so much more. So I hope people will look for the paper, the lists of assistive devices in particular. We've only even alluded to that. In today's world, this population uses an enormous amount of assistive devices shy of prosthesis. They're really helping people in a great deal. Thank you for the chance, Steve. You're very welcome, Harold. Thank you. So we've come to the end of our podcast, and I'd like to thank Dr. Sears for sharing his insights and discussing his research with us today. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on this project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's ONP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article.